0: This is our next to the last session, session number 11. We've got 12. Next Wednesday night will be our final session. We will take a break until the end of January somewhere. I don't remember the exact date, but we're putting together that next semester. Um, I have not yet determined what I'm going to do. I'm working on something, but I'm kind of not sure if I'm going to pull it off. So, um, I've been wanting to do one called The Beginning and the End, to where I actually put together a 12-week program on The Beginning and the End. It'll start in Genesis, uh, it'll go through Revelation, it'll spend time talking about heaven and hell, The Beginning and the End. Um, But I've been working on it, and it's not going good, so I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. We'll do something next semester, I just don't know what it's going to be yet. So tonight I want to pray that God will open up uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because I'm going to tell you what, uh, this is a powerful chapter. Uh, Blow the top of your mind off chapter, okay? Father, I ask you again tonight, open our minds to understand the scripture. The Holy Spirit reveals truth, and you are the Holy Spirit. So we're seeking tonight, we're knocking tonight, we're asking tonight for your presence to be manifest through your word and inside of us, that we would not know about you, we would know you, the one true God in Jesus who you sent. In his name I pray, amen. We begin tonight with one of the most amazing statements in Paul's writings. Uh, And I am not overstating that. He only talks about it here, in this place. But when he talks about it, wow. Here we go, verse 1, chapter 12. This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations of the Lord, from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body, but I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. Paradise third heaven he was called up now paul is experiencing something that very few people in the scripture experienced ezekiel was caught up he saw things he saw the new temple the millennial temple in israel in future generations isaiah was called up to the throne of god Remember, he says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. See, Paul is caught up, and I want you to notice something, the wording. Every English translation uses the same wording for paradise. He was caught up to the third heaven. Now, what's the third heaven? I'm going to be real short and simple on this, because... Um, I'm in the future in a heaven series that I'm trying to work on. I'll deal with this in detail. The first heaven is when you go outside and look up at the sky. You see the atmosphere around the earth. I've been studying that the first 10 miles of, from earth's uh, surface up, 10 miles contains pretty much everything we need to sustain life. All the ingredients, the oxygen, and all the things it takes to sustain life on planet earth happen inside 10 miles let's just call that the first heaven it's what we look at and see it's the atmosphere that surrounds planet earth the first heaven but there's a second heaven if you look on past our earth's atmosphere you would see the the sun and the moon and the stars in fact You can see as far as humans can see. And it's innumerable. There are so many stars. There's so much space. We can't measure the distance. We measure it in light years. It's so big. We can't count the stars. Let's call that the second heaven. What's beyond that? Everybody wants to know. NASA wants to know what's behind, beyond that. What's beyond it? Paradise. The third heaven is just simply an illustration to the fact that what is beyond our realm, how far away is it? Maybe it's not so far away at all. Maybe you just can't get there from here. It's the third heaven. It's paradise. Now, when I use the word paradise, let's get off of the word third heaven. Let's just say it is the presence of God. Paul is not caught up to nothing. He's caught up into the presence of God. He's caught up into where God lives. He experiences God. Now, what's it called? He calls it, and I checked multiple translations, he calls it paradise. Remember when Jesus is on the cross and the thief is on the side of him and he looks at the thief and says, I tell you, today you will be with me, where? In paradise, in the third heaven. Now here's a man, the Apostle Paul, that has been caught up into the presence of God. And here's what's remarkable. He said twice, I don't know whether I was in my body or out of my body. I don't know. I just know it was incredible. But I do know. Look at what he says. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise. I do know that I heard things that I'm not allowed to talk about. Aren't you curious what those things are? You see, when God revealed, when Jesus reveals himself to the apostle John, he told him, do not seal it up. Write it down. To Daniel, Daniel was told to seal it up. Don't write it down. And here Paul is, he said, I can't talk about it. What are they? Some things can be, can be communicated. Some things cannot be communicated. Some things are secret truths. Paul says, I can't talk about it. All of that to ask this question. Can you see why Paul would endure hardship and suffering to serve Christ? I can. Yeah, you, 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 you take me up to the third heaven, park me there for just 15, 20 minutes. Bring me back. You would never get over that. Can you see now why he would be willing to die for the cause of Christ? He saw something bigger than us. Bigger than earth bigger than the sun and the moon and the stars bigger than the galaxies bigger than the milky way bigger than anything that is anything he saw the third heaven he saw the dwelling place of god he saw paradise now once you've seen paradise everything down here is going to kind of lose its taste why, what did he see 14 years earlier that so dramatically affected him? What was it? I've often used the illustration of three seconds. You've heard me use it in sermons. Three seconds. I'm convinced it would only take three seconds. only reason it takes three seconds, I think it takes about a second and a half for your eyes to focus. If there was a knothole in the fence of heaven, And you and I were allowed for three seconds to stick our eyeball in the knothole of the fence of heaven and gaze in. There's nobody in this room who would ever be the same again. You would be forever changed. And if you could spin around and get the same three seconds in a knothole in the fence of hell and gaze into the lake of burning sulfur, you would never be the same again. But I got some news tonight. The Bible gives way more than three seconds of both. Everything you need to know about heaven is in this book called the Bible. Everything you need to know about hell is in this book called the Bible. And you got way more than three seconds to view and see and know and respond. Paul saw the third heaven, he saw paradise. And he writes most of the New Testament. We're reading it. We're reading his encounter. Now, do you believe that he saw this stuff? Actually saw this? You see, Paul had already met Jesus face to face before this happened. So this is kind of like a phase two. He'd already met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he had already had an encounter with God. And if that was not enough, he's moving from this face-to-face encounter with God on planet Earth, on his way to Damascus, Syria, from Jerusalem. And now he gets this airlift into the third heaven and experiences paradise. Let's go back. I want to look at the face-to-face encounter. Here's why. Well, I'll explain it when I get to the end. As he, Paul, was approaching Damascus on this mission. What was his mission? Hunt down Christians, put them in prison, kill them. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He, Paul, fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to him, actually his name was Saul at that time, excuse me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now pause for a minute. What do you mean he's persecuting? Paul, Saul is persecuting the church. He is not a believer. He thinks Jesus is a fraud. He does not believe in Jesus is the son of God. Not yet, but he's just now meeting him. Why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. What city? He's going into Damascus. By the way, Damascus is still there. It is the, I read somewhere that it is the longest continually inhabited city on earth. Also, I'll give you a hint. The Bible prophecy says that one day Damascus will be no more. It will be totally destroyed. No life left in it. Interesting. Now get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. The men with Paul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, but I wonder how many of you actually read that email I sent out, uh, a word from Terry about grace. Raise your hand. A few of you did. I just sent that out um, today, and the reason I bring that up tonight is this. Do you know what the first thing, if you read the email, you know what I'm going to ask The first thing, when Paul is blind, he goes to Damascus. And while he's blind in Damascus, God goes to a believer in Damascus named Ananias and says to Ananias, go to Saul and give him his sight back. Give him his sight back. I'll use you to give him his sight back. So the first thing that Saul is going to see after he meets Jesus is what? Ananias. Do you know what Ananias' name is in Hebrew? The grace of God. You can't make this up. What's the first thing that Ananias, that Saul, saw when his eyes were opened after meeting Jesus? The grace of God. Now, he's already met Jesus on the road. The grace of God opened his eyes. The grace of God just called this blaspheming murderer to be the apostle to the Gentile world. Because it's only grace. If God was looking for an impressive resume to go tell the Gentile world about this blessed Savior, I don't think Paul's resume would get to the top of the stack. Why? He's a Jesus hater. He doesn't believe in Jesus, he thinks it's all a fraud. Until Jesus introduces himself on the road to Damascus. But what really introduced himself to Paul? Saul on the road to Damascus. The grace of God. What did Paul do to deserve the calling? To deserve this encounter? What did Paul do to deserve this trip to the third heaven? What? The grace of God. The unmerited favor of God. But here's the point. Paul met Jesus. Paul saw Jesus. He saw paradise. He encountered God, right? And in the midst of that, let's go to verse 3. There's the context. I passed on to you what is most important and what has also been passed on to me. What's in the writings of Paul? We're reading 2 Corinthians. I passed on to you what is most important. And I'm only giving you what he gave me. I'm just passing along just the messenger. I didn't make the message. I'm the messenger of Jesus. Christ died for our sins. What's he passing along? What's the message? Christ died for our sins. Just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. Just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then the twelve. After that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles Last of all, though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Now before I get into detail, let me just take a side note here. He says, I'm not worthy to be called apostle because of the way I persecuted the church. I think Paul, though he is forgiven, Though he is, his sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed Paul, Saul's sins. He still bears the scars. He still bears it. Can you see it? This man is forgiven. The blood of the grace, he has met the grace of God, the forgiveness of sin. But listen, some of you need to hear this tonight. He still bears the scars. God can forget, and God did forget, but Paul still remembers. When they stoned Stephen to death, he was there cheering them on. You think that's not in his head? You think that's not in his mind? He said, I'm not worthy to be this person called by God it is truly grace paul saw jesus on the road to damascus paul saw jesus enthroned in heaven at, in paradise now and only now after that context may you be able to might, might you be able to understand why paul wrote this now i'm jumping over to acts chapter 20 paul said i am bound by the spirit to go to jerusalem I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about what, the wonderful what. What did he meet on the road? Grace. What's Ananias' name? grace to tell i consider my life of no meaning i will have failed in life if i do not tell people about this man jesus and his grace a man on a mission he's on a mission why he met jesus he had an encounter with god A man that has seen God in things that he could not even speak of. What did that experience do to this man? What did that experience not do to this man? He is radically changed, right? You've heard me say multiple times here, can anybody in this room imagine tonight that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit moves inside this physical body, this temple. He comes, moves inside, begins residence inside of me, and I am unchanged? Really? Really? The glory of God moves inside Terry Cooper, and Terry Cooper's the same before and after? Really? Anybody really believe that's possible? It changes people, it produces fruit. It produces fruit. In fact, I don't even think you cannot produce fruit when he moves inside of you because it's his power. Now, back to the main text, verse 5. That experience is worth boasting about. What experience? Yeah, I went to heaven. What'd you do last week? Yeah, I went to heaven. I saw paradise. What'd you do? Well, I went to Walmart. (laughs) Yeah, I went to heaven. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit. I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, There you go. There's that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. There's that encounter in heaven. There's that encounter with the everyday Holy Spirit inside of him. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud. Here it comes. Would it be hard to be humble after you got back from heaven? Would it be hard to be humble after you've had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus? Would it be hard to be humble after you've experienced paradise? So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. You see, that would be the danger that could derail Paul. You think God doesn't know that? What would it be that could mess Paul up? He's met Jesus. He's seen the third heaven. He saw paradise. He's got the Holy Spirit. What What could it be that would derail him? I'm going to ask you a question. What derailed Satan? It says in the book of Isaiah, what did it? Pride. You became proud. You became proud. What was it? You wanted to move up. You considered your rank to be higher. Not high enough. Higher. Not high enough. Higher. Not high enough. Higher. I've been to heaven. It's hard to get higher in the third heaven. Arrogance and pride is the fall of man. Arrogance and pride. Let's just start there tonight. What is it that can get you? Arrogance and pride. Paul had so much to boast about, but instead he only boasted in his weakness. He only boasted, and let me say what that means. When you say boasted, what does it mean? What is it about your life that you want to hold out there for somebody to see? When they they meet Paul, do you want to say, I've been to heaven. Or you say, the grace of God saved me. Which one? Which one's he boasting about? I only want to boast in the grace. I only want to boast in the cross. I don't want to boast about my resume. He only boasted in his weakness. Instead of arrogance, he demonstrated humility. If you read the wording in his writing, he said, I am a servant of Jesus. I am a servant of the church. You know, the word servant can easily be translated in most texts to slave. I am a slave of Jesus. So if I'm going to boast, here's my boast. I am a slave of Jesus. I am a slave of the church. Paul did not want to touch the glory that belonged to Jesus and him alone. He made it his life's mission not to touch the glory. Stay away from the glory. The glory belongs to Jesus. Now, the interesting part for tonight. God protected Paul from pride and arrogance by giving him a thorn in the flesh. A weakness that tormented him. That word torment literally means to beat to beat, to strike. We have no idea what this thorn was. So it would be useless for to sit here tonight and all speculate what you think it is or what I think it is. But we do know that it kept Paul from becoming proud. There's a lot of things that God could give you to keep you humble. Let me tell you, uh, first thing I think about when I just said that was Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was proud, he was boastful. And Daniel warned him, and Daniel warned him, and Daniel warned him. You remember? Daniel said, oh, you better stop this. You better stop this. Maybe even now, if you humble yourself, God will turn away from that division, cutting that whole tree thing down. Maybe even now he'll turn away, but you've got to stop this. And Nebuchadnezzar walks over to a window one day, and he looks out and he sees all of Babylon. It's all mine. What did God do to him? Let me tell you what. He can humble you. He didn't give him a thorn in the flesh. He gave him a, turned him into a woolly mammoth in the field. He turned him into a beast. Seven years. Seven years. Seven years. The king of Babylon ate grass in the field. You know what happened when he came out of it? Suddenly one day God comes to this king and stands him up, opens his eyes, his ears, his heart, and he writes down, I'll paraphrase it, and I haven't memorized it, he says this, Worship him alone, for he is able to humble you. I'm thinking, nobody knows that more than you, Nebuchadnezzar. He is able to humble you. So, with that context, Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. But if you'll humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you'll just go on and go down, he'll raise you up. But if you go in there thinking you're going to go up, you're going to go down. Can you see God's love in thorn? I can in Paul. I have a much more difficult time seeing it in me. Can you see God's love in a thorn of the flesh? A weakness, a sickness, a hardship, a persecution. Something that seems incurable. Something that seems unfixable. Something that seems unattainable. A difficulty that just drives you crazy and you can't get your mind off of it because it's relentless. It never stops. It's here every day. Can you see God's love in that? You can when it's somebody else. Or maybe you just think, well, that's just God being mean. Paul didn't want this thorn. I'm going to give you an interesting thing tonight. Paul didn't want this thorn in three times. Why three times? Anybody know? Paul didn't want this thorn in three times. He asked God to take it away. Three times. He has a personal relationship with Jesus. And he says... I'd like for you to stop this. Take it away. Next verse, verse 8. Three different times. I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and in hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Three times. Anybody pick up on that? Because I found an incredible parallel. Jesus prayed and he asked his father three times. Three times to take away the cross. Do you know that? Coincidence? There are no coincidences. Jesus asked his father three times, take it away. You doubt what I say? Look, I wrote it down there. I copied it for you. I didn't write it. Matthew twenty six. Jesus left them a second time and he prayed my father if this cup cannot be taken away unless i drink it your will be done when he returned to them again he found them sleeping for he couldn't keep their they couldn't keep their eyes open so he went to pray a third time saying the same thing again three times god said no three times God said no. This is one of the most difficult messages to the church. What? My grace is enough. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Our greatest trap is to depend upon ourselves, our own intellect, our own strength. I give a personal testimony about this. When I first left um, the business world and went full-time here at the church, the church was so small, and I had in my mind that once I made that decision, once I bit the bullet and I dove in, that God was going to do just incredible things. You just watch what's going to happen. I quit my job. I brought my family over here. You watch what God's going to do. Pride. Pride, pride. So I came, um, I came in the office one day, and you know what? If you look, there was a pretty much a continual but small growth uh, the time that I was bivocational here. And then I quit my job, and all of a sudden everything either flattened out or went down. And you know what I thought? Oh, no. What did I just do? And I can still remember, listen, I can, tell you, I can tell you exactly what happened that day. I was doing my study. I was in that first building in that original office. And I was having to come-to-Jesus mate. And I was having a bit of a pity party. And God revealed something to me. Just, just like this right here. It's like this. You think you're going to do something here. You think you are going to do something here. You are not going to do anything here. Well, the end result of that, I found myself on the floor, laying flat on the floor, my nose in the carpet, snot running out of my nose, weeping in front of God. I apologized. And I said this. This is your church. It's not mine. You want something to happen here? It'll be you. It won't be me. And the church took off. Paul said, I ask God to take away the hard part. But it is the hard part that reveals our weakness it's the hard part that reveals i have limitations i i don't know that much it's the hard part that reveals my grace is enough for you the fact that i called you the fact that i appointed you the fact that i placed you in this place at this time that's enough that's enough my grace is sufficient for you My power. Jesus looked at me. He looked at Paul. He looks at you and says, My power works best when you're weak. Why? Because when you're weak, you will never touch the glory. But when you're proud, you'll reach for it every time. Our greatest trap is to depend upon ourselves, our own intellect, our own strength. But I've come to this conclusion: everything that I do outside of the power of Christ is going to be hay, wood, and straw on the last day. It's going to burn up in the fire. It won't pass through. There are no methods. Go to the Christian, go to Lifeway, go to Christian bookstore. Look on the shelf: thousands of books on methods to grow the church. Thousands of books. My goodness, it boggles the mind how many people have figured out how to grow the church. There's only one way to grow the church. He does it. He does it. In fact, let me say this. I've learned, it took me several years to figure this one out too, that our intention is not to grow the church. Listen carefully, don't misquote me. My intention is not to grow the church, my intention is to preach the gospel. I have to totally change my thinking. See, I think that's the trap. Because if my intention is to grow the church, I would probably modify the gospel so it's more attractive. My goal, preacher's goal, is to preach the gospel. If that grows the church, so be it. If that shrinks the church, so be it. Preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Let him figure out the rest. Verse 3. I'm going to 1 Corinthians. Uh, excuse me. No. Weakness, let me jump forward. Weakness forces us to do something. You have to depend on God. I'm going to tell you something, probably most of you will not believe, okay? But I'm going to tell you. I stay backstage on the first service, I come out here in the second service. I can only do one song service a week, my voice can't handle it. So I sing one service. I stay backstage and stay in the other service. Outside, first service, I stay backstage. There are many Sundays. Some of you aren't going to believe it, but I'm being honest. I'm being as transparent as I know how to be. Some Sundays, when I get ready to walk through that curtain after everybody has finished the song service, I am an absolute nervous wreck. I am afraid. You probably never see it. You probably don't know it. I am afraid. I understand the scope of what we do. I understand the responsibility of this calling. I am unqualified for this assignment. I am unqualified. I know I'm unqualified. So there's these words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine, all power and glory belongs to you through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And would you begin, you began a work in me and you will bring it to completion. And then the last thing I say before I come through the door is for the glory of your name and for the souls of man. Weakness. Forces. Dependence upon God. But I got to tell you, I hate weakness. I hate it. I hate it. I hate standing back there before I walk through that curtain and trembling. I hate it. I hate every part of that. But I know in my heart that it is in that that I am totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I'm totally dependent upon his work to do something today. The power of God is revealed when we fall down on our knees in weakness. Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from His glorious, unlimited resources, He will empower you with inner strength through the Holy Spirit. Any other power, any other method, any other way, It's going to be hay, wood, and straw on the last day. It's not going to pass through the flames. It won't make it. It'll burn up. Philippians 4.12. Paul says, I know how to live on almost nothing. I know how to live with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ. Through Christ who gives me strength. Paul learned the secret wisdom of God by suffering and the thorn in the flesh. Paul didn't resist the thorn, but he thanked God for the thorn. When's the last time you thanked God for the thorn that's sticking you? When's the last time I thanked God for being afraid before I walked through that door? When? Paul didn't resist. Let me repeat verses 8 through 10. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work. So now the power of Christ can work through me. I'm not usable the other way. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you be glad in weakness? Can you take pleasure and rejoice in weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, troubles? I wish y'all could read some of the emails I get during the week. I'm going to tell you it's hard to take pleasure in some of those. There's some I take great pleasure in. Some are great encouragement to me. There's some... I'm not going to say that other part. You can when you realize that it is in those weaknesses that God's grace and His power are truly manifest. Let's go to verse 11. You have made me act like a fool, boasting like this. You ought to be writing accommodations for me For I am not at all inferior to those super apostles, even though I am nothing at all. When I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I am an apostle. For I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. The only thing I failed to do, which I do in the other churches, was to become a financial burden to you. Please forgive me for this wrong. See a little sarcasm there? I do. Notice that Paul reminded them of the supernatural signs and wonders that he performed in Corinth, proving his apostolic calling. He also reminded them that he worked for free and will come in, come back again for free. Verse 14. Now I am coming to you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, I don't want what you have, I want you. How powerful is that? I don't want what you have, I want you. After all, children don't provide for their parents, rather, (coughs) excuse me, parents provide for their children. I will gladly spend myself. I like how the NLT translates those words. I will gladly spend myself and all that I have for you, even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Paul is spending his life in service to Christ and in service to the church, the one that he loves dearly. And the reality is this. You and I are spending our lives right now. Do you know that? You've got an account that God gave you, and you're spending your life right now. I spent 24 hours yesterday. You did too. When this day's over, you will have spent another 24 hours. You didn't create that 24 hours. Somebody gave it to you, and you spent it. And every day, you spend it, and you spend it all. You're not going to be able to save any. You're not going to be able to say, Well, you know what? I think I ought to put back six hours from today into a future savings account. doesn't work like that. So I've got a question. What are you spending your life on? What are you spending your life What's What's the purpose? Why are you here? Now, I am I turned 61 last week <laughs> on Thanksgiving Day. I turned 61. I don't think I've got as much in that account left as I have when I started. I don't know how many more 24-hour checks I can write. I don't know how many more 24-hour checks you'll write. but it would be a good idea to be careful how I spend what I've got left. I think it would be a real good idea if you were careful how you spent what you've got left. Now, I want to read that again, verse 15. I will gladly spend myself and all that I have for you. Even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. Do you think preaching the gospel is going to win over? Everybody's going to love you because you preach the gospel? You think you go around holding that Bible up and say, I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. And everybody's going to say, I love you. (laughs) I would like to spend my life, what's left of my life, telling people what's in that book. Giving them hope that there is a time when we finish spending the days here that he will deposit in an unlimited supply in another account in the third heaven called paradise. Verse 16. Some of you admit that I was not a burden to you, but others still think I was sneaky, took advantage of you by trickery. But How? Did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? When I urged Titus to visit you and send our other brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No. For we have the same spirit and we walk in each other's steps doing the Doing things the same way. Nothing in Paul's life was for personal gain. Did you get that? Because if you read the story of his life, I have a feeling before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, much of his life was for personal gain. And something happened. When he encountered Jesus, when he saw the third heaven, when he experienced the Holy Spirit, the goal of his life was no longer for personal gain. He spent his life on others. That changes everything. Finally, a warning from Paul. A warning. He's announcing his third arrival, and he gives them a warning. Prepare for my arrival. Here we go, verse 19. Perhaps you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves. No, we tell you this as Christ's servants and with God as our witness. Everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. For I'm afraid that when I come, I won't be, I won't like what I find. And you won't like my response. I'm afraid that I will find quarreling. In the church? No way. Huh? I'm afraid that I'll find quarreling. I'm afraid I'll find jealousy. I'm afraid I'll find anger or selfishness or slander or gossip or arrogance or disorderly behavior. No, surely not. Yes, I'm afraid that when I come again God will humble me in your presence and I will be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. What would grieve Paul when he got to Corinth? What would He would look at the church through which he preached the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and find out that many have not repented. You did not give up your old sin. You remained in sin. You have not repented of your impurity. You have not repented of your sexual immorality. You have not repented of your eagerness for lustful pleasure. What about Nineveh? What about us? Have you repented? Have I? Have have we repented? Impurity? Is there any impurity in the church? Any sexual immorality in the church? Any eagerness for lustful pleasure in the church? What are we going to do? Huh? Let's just pretend like we didn't hear it tonight. You see, the church hasn't changed much. We're at war. This is a spiritual battle. Paul promised the bride to the bridegroom. He says, I have promised you to Christ as a pure bride. He promised the bride would be pure and faithful while she waited for the wedding day. And Paul is offended if the bride is a cheater while she's waiting for the wedding. same is true today. My prayer for Nineveh, my prayer for his church around the world is that she would be found faithful when he comes. I'm even more convinced than I was when I came here. The return of Christ is near. And there's always one verse. There's one verse, one verse. I have never been able to get over this one verse. Jesus looks at a crowd of people and says, and when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's a good question. Somebody brought me a copy of the Courier Journal today. I don't normally read any paper, quite frankly, but somebody saw the headlines of the Courier Journal and brought it in, dropped it off in the, with Katie today, and Katie brought it in to me. The head, headlines, front page of the Courier Journal, was something, uh, potential split in the Southern Baptist Church over LBGT. Now, when you read the article, it actually made more of a headline than it actually is. But when I read the headline and I was standing out and I looked at Katie and somebody else was standing there and I just said this, when I read the headline, because I really don't see the Southern Baptists sliding into this abyss, I think they'll stand strong. But when I read the headline, I said to Katie, I wonder how many will still be standing on the last day. Because I really do, I really do, I really do wonder how many will be standing on the last day. When I say standing, how many are going to take the word of God and say, here I stand? Do what you won't do, but here I stand. Because the whole article was about a bunch of churches that are, uh, the article was about somebody in the Highland Baptist Church in Louisville, which I don't know anything about had started an LBGT ministry, not just to reach out to the LBGT community, which would be fine, but to embrace the LBGT community by ordaining LBGT people in the church. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And when I said that, I went into the office and I sat down and I was trying to do some writing today. And in my head, what I heard was God talking to Elijah. Because Elijah <clears throat> looked at God one day after he had had his encounter with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He, he's having a pity party. And he looks at God and he says, I'm the only one left. There ain't nobody left. I stand here all by yourself. All by myself, Lord. I'm the only one left. What God say to him? Some of you know. He said, Elijah, I have reserved unto myself 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. And they will not bow to Baal. They are mine. And Elijah, you're not done. You're going to go anoint the next prophet. You're going to give your mantle to Elisha. You're going to go over and anoint the next king. i got several jobs for you to do. And when you finish those little jobs, I'm going to come get you. Like literally, I'm going to come get you. And then I thought to myself, this is the message of the church There are many who have not bowed to Baal. The word Baal means master. He has reserved unto himself his bride. She will be ready. She will make herself ready by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she'll be ready and stand in waiting for the bridegroom. When the door opens, she will walk through. And he's going to come and get her. She'll have some jobs to do like Elijah. She'll perform some tasks like Elijah. And he's going to come get her. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, tonight, I thank you for the weaknesses that have manifested your great strength. I thank you for the grace that came and stopped us on our road to disaster and showed us who you are and revealed who we are. And I pray for your church around the world, make us strong and very courageous. Make us men and women of God ready for that last day. For we know that you have reserved into yourself those who will be ready on the day the bridegroom comes. Make us ready, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.